Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Gender Studies series with me, Egon Seamus. Thanks for downloading this edition of the program, and I do hope you enjoy it. The mass participation of women in communist-led partisan resistance in Yugoslavia was one of the most remarkable phenomena of World War II. Thousands of women, mostly from rural areas, joined the guerrilla army, and many of them took direct military roles. By the end of the war, thousands reached officer ranks. My guest today has explored this unique phenomenon. Yelena Batinich was awarded her doctorate at Stanford University, where she is now working. Her recent book, Women and Yugoslav Partisans, A History of World War II Resistance, was published by Cambridge University Press. It explores the complex participation of Yugoslav women in war and examines changing gender norms that the war and this participation caused. Yelena Batinich, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a broad introduction of the Second World War in Yugoslavia. For our listeners not so familiar with the region, the war was very complex. Could you tell us more about the size of the Communist Party and its relation to the Soviet Union? Um, yes. Well, the war in Yugoslavia was, as you said, extremely complex. And uh, it is something of a challenge to introduce it in a couple of words, but let me try. I think it might be good to start um, with a couple of words uh, about the country itself. Um, it was truly um, a paradigm of East European diversity, a true mosaic of cultures, uh, languages, religions, and peoples, including Slavic-speaking peoples like Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, Muslims, Bosniaks, Macedonians, Montenegrins, uh, as well as non-Slavic uh, populations, including Albanians, Hungarians, Germans, uh, the Roma people. Um, uh, there was also a Jewish minority and other minorities in the and the country, unfortunately, in the interwar period, was was uh, troubled by by uh, interethnic strife. Uh, the country got into the war um, not so much because Hitler thought it would be its its kind of prime interest in the Balkans, but because uh, he sent troops to Greece to help the Italian troops uh, were stuck there, and the route to Greece actually led, would lead German troops to Yugoslavia. So under pressure, the Yugoslav government signed a tripartite pact, which then provoked a pro-British faction in, in the Air Force to stage a coup and overthrow the government. Now, um, the ret- retaliation for, for the coup was truly brutal. The country was thereupon bombed, occupied, and dismembered. Four occupational armies uh, in, in, in the dismemberment of the country, the Germans, Italians, Hungarians, and then also Bulgarians later on. And each of these invaders uh, claimed a piece of the Yugoslav territory. So there were areas that were directly annexed, and others that were occupied and then sometimes ruled with the help of local civil administrations. Uh, besides the annexed and, and occupied territories, um, the, the central part of, of the country, which basically would include most of, of uh, today's Croatia 
and all of today's Bosnia-Herzegovina was incorporated into uh, a state that was nominally autonomous. It was called the independent state of Croatia, which was placed under the, the fascist Ostasha regime. Now, um, the conquest and, and occupation of the country marked the beginning of a, of a really, really catastrophic people, period, I'm sorry, for the, for the Yugoslav peoples. Um, in practically all territories that were um, occupied, uh, the new rulers instituted policies of, of racial classification, economic exploitation, and also political terror, which were very often followed by uh, mass deportations and mass killings. And so the brutality uh, of the occupational system uh, very shortly engendered resistance, which took the form of guerrilla warfare. Um, the, the occupational policies also polarized the local po uh, population along uh, both ethnic and, and ideological lines. And so locals were kind of pitted one against another, and I, there were many, many factions, local factions, that were involved in the series of civil wars there, but I'm just going to mention a couple of major players. Fascists, such as I've already, already mentioned, Royalist Chetnik movement was one of the participants in the civil war, and obviously the communist-led partisans, uh, who were all uh, involved in a, in a multi-sided civil war. So during the four years in the region, years of World War II in the region, uh, we do not see one. We see multiple wars. A war of resistance was taking place simultaneously there with a series of genocidal attacks and civil wars. And uh, altogether, I think they claimed the lives of about one million people. Wow, so since this conflict was so brutal, how come that women engaged so directly into it? Was precisely this war brutality the main reason behind it? Mm. Yes. So brutality, I think, definitely played a role. Uh, but um, but I think when we think about it, your occupational policy, we know that in general occupational policy does kind of shape the response of the population. To that, I would also add other factors, and that would be the nature of collaboration in the region. And some of the collaborationist regimes were truly notorious for their brutality, um, such as the Yugoslavia. Uh, regime in, in the independent state of Croatia with ethnic cleansing and genocide on their daily repertoire. And other occupational, uh, other collaborationist regimes were not that much better either. So uh, female partisans do very often come from war-ravaged villages in which whole communities, including men, women, and children, were targeted on account of their ethnicity. And many, many women veterans do mention their experience of violence at the hands of, of the invaders or one of the, or one of the uh, sides in, in the civil war, uh, and, and a desire for, for revenge from that, for that uh, violence when they talk about their motivation to join the partisans. But, um, but if, if, by, um, if by women's involvement in war you mean guerrilla warfare, I think there are other factors to... Uh, to, to have conditions for guerrilla warfare, you actually have to have the right terrain. And I think in the Balkans, in the Western Balkans, the terrain was, was indeed uh, uh, something that, that, that lent itself to guerrilla warfare. In fact, there was a long, a long and very still living tradition of insurgency and guerrilla warfare 
uh, at the time of, of World War II that the local factions could draw upon. But when it comes to women's role, per se, I would emphasize uh, the importance of the ideology of the leadership. Uh, that is the, the degree to which the leadership is willing to accept women really, I think, made, made a difference. And in the Yugoslav case, we see this willingness not merely to accept and tolerate women, so to speak, but we actually see sustained efforts, sustained efforts of the, of, on the part of the partisan leadership to actively reach out uh, to women and to mobilize them into their movement. So the partisan leadership um, to, to, to reach out to women developed a political rhetoric, a language to attract women to the movement, and as important to, to legitimize, to justify their active participation in, in the war in the eyes of the conservative public. And in addition to developing a new language to speak about women's mobilization, they developed an institutional framework for, for women's recruitment. And I think that's what really distinguished the partisans from all their local opponents, from all other factions who were involved in those wars in the Balkans, cooperated in the same context with the respect to other factors that, that we mentioned, the brutality, um, the collaboration, the nature of collaboration, the terrain, the traditions of insurgency, and so on. So I think to explain the phenomenon, one really needs to look at the person's gender politics. And that's, that's what my book does. So you have mentioned the rhetoric of the partisan leaders. So what was their strategy in mobilizing women? How that rhetoric played out? Well, um, I think that's where it gets really interesting. So, um, as I said, they develop a language, a rhetoric to appeal to women. And their rhetorical strategy actually rested upon a combination, a very deft, a very skillful combination of traditional Balkan culture with a revolutionary language. So what we see is that in its appeals to women, the Communist Party typically emphasized um, its dedication to, to gender equality, to women's rights. Right? When they talk to women, they talk about the advantages that uh, women would be, would be accorded in, in, the, in the new regime that the communists are about uh, to establish. But parallel to such statements, uh, the party also drew on patriarchal folk traditions. So, in fact, um, in order to appeal to the population's uh, patriotic feelings, um, the party invoked the imagery of freedom fighters against foreign invaders from um, South Slavic, traditional South Slavic folklore. And these references to, to those epic heroes, the freedom fighters, allowed the, the party, which was an urban-based communist organization, to claim continuity or lineage, if you wish, with, with those legendary heroes, and thus, in a way, to establish cultural authority among, among the peasants. And perhaps most important, uh, this traditional culture also provided, uh, provided uh, models for women's participation in war. So the communists invoked the images of, of epic heroines to attract women to the movement and to also legitimize uh, the female partisan in the eyes of the populace. So they represented the female partisan as, as the supreme or the most radiant successor to the old epic heroines. Then I was just wondering, uh, were the communist leaders actually aware that uh, 
such rhetoric and connection with uh, traditional culture, but that then allowed for women's water participation, but they're aware that it might destabilize gender norms. Was it actually deliberate or was it a side effect? The destabilization of gender norms? Yes, yes. Uh, they did. This is part of their ideology. They, uh, they used the leadership, the leadership of the partisan movement was communist. And uh, these people were, well, communists, right? They had this ideology uh, which was their driving force. They took their ideology. They did, these, these guys did take their ideology seriously. And they, um, and gender ideology was part of their egalitarian script, their ideological script. So they did uh, believe that, um, that the new polity of equals and that it, this new polity they are about to build, women would have a different role. Um, but whether they expected this invocation of traditional models to help in, uh, in breaking those traditional norms, um, I don't think so. I think their primary goal was actually to, to draw the population in, to uh, attract women to the movement, and uh, this is their mobilizational strategy. Okay, so once, yeah. once these women were mobilized, actually, what kind of roles did they have in the, in the partisan units? They took a range of roles in the partisan units. Um, they served in both combat and uh, non-combat capacities. So some of the most prominent women, just to mention some of the roles, um, some of the most prominent women, typically those who were pre-war communists, um, they served in political roles, as, as let's say political commissaries in, in the partisan army. And, and the partisan army was largely modeled on, on the kind of Soviet model, so, the, so in the army they had beside in the, in, the, in the staff of each unit, they had, in, in addition to, to military commanders, also representatives of the party political commissaries. So women who typically had some party credentials would, would be found in those roles. They also worked in the agitation and propaganda departments of the partisan staffs. Um, other women could be found in, in various um, clerical and communication Positions such as typists, secretaries, uh, radio and telegraph operators. Um, many, many women were used as, as couriers for intelligence gathering, um, liaison personnel, and in various other auxiliary positions. But um, I think the most conspicuous um, of all the women in the partisan units were two groups. Uh, Female fighters on the one hand and partisan nurses on the other hand. Uh, female fighters obviously stood out because they were a novelty. They were a mass participation of, of women in, in, in uh, military mass participation of women uh, was, was a very new phenomenon in the region. Female nurses on the other hand stood out because they were truly numerous because of their numerical preponderance in the units typically if you were to find a, a, a woman in any partisan unit, you are most likely to find uh, in the in the medical sector. So the term partisanka or female partisan, um, which does tend to kind of signify all women in the partisan movement, has traditionally been most often used in, in reference to either the female fighter or the female nurse. 
And um, a typical representation of, of the female fighter, of the female partisan in general, in Yugoslav culture, typically also um, um, is that of an armed girl who also tends to the wounded. So it's, it's kind of an intersection of a, of a fighter and a nurse. Um, most female fighters were rank and file soldiers. Several did rise to the to ranks, and some, at sometimes they also could have. We can see them commanding smaller units, such as platoons, uh, but for the most part they did not command. How was it accepted by male partisans that they were commanding units? Um, not always well. <laughs> and one of the, one of the, uh, one of the legends of the, of the, uh, of the partisan movement that we see uh, repeated in both the partisan press during the war, but then also in memoirs, in, um, in, in, in post-war cultural production, is this story of proving worthy. That is kind of the common theme, which again kind of draws on the imagery that was uh, developed in, in, in the epic poetry before. So, um, so what we see is typically, in a typical story, a woman joins the unit and she is met with the mistrust of, of male uh, of her male comrades who could believe that the woman is capable of, of fighting, and then she proves herself worthy in battle and thus earns their respect and and uh, inequality, if you wish. So that's, that's I think, uh, one of the ways in which they kind of reconcile this traditional uh, set of gender values and uh, this epic imagery with their egalitarian agenda. It's kind of the image of a woman who proves worthy of equality, and that's, that, that is to serve uh, as a legitimization of both women's participation in warfare and of the egalitarian order that is to come out of the war. But I guess that the, in the reality of guerrilla warfare, that being a partisan nurse was equally dangerous, right? Well, probably, yes, probably. It, it was... Um, any any position in the partisan units was something that was life-threatening, and uh, they operated in extremely difficult conditions. So the the mortality rates for for female nurses are not as high as they are for fighters, but it was certainly a very very dangerous uh, task. So was there also a myth afterwards about partisan nurses as there was for partisan female soldiers? I do not see that many proving worthy narratives because mm -hmm. the nurse is typically uh, more in line with the traditional expectations of what a woman's role might be. And, uh, and so for female nurses, I see less of an attempt to justify and legitimize. Oh, I see. With a, with a female nurse, we see a different problem, and that is an attempt on the part of the party to show that that kind of role is worthy of respect because combat is this, this primary and most respected duty. And so traditionally we see that nursing is not accorded the same respect. So many young female nurses uh, had difficulty getting the respect and authority that they needed to be efficient in their jobs in, in the partisan army. Okay. Um, another very unique phenomenon and central to your book was this organization called the Anti-Fascist Women's Front. Could you please introduce our listeners to this organization and what was its importance? Yes, um, so uh, 
Uh, the anti-fascist front of women, or the AFG, as it's, it's the abbreviation in, in, the, in, the, in the local languages, was actually the only gender-specific organization in the partisan movement. And so early in the war, uh, when they realized that men will be leaving from the front, and that actually it would be women who would have to take over uh, the agricultural production in the rear and also their rear support system, the partisan leaders declared, decided to form, uh, to form a special organization that would be in charge specifically of mobilizing women into the movement. So um, in that respect, uh, the AFG was a unique and really original wartime creation. And it operated on a surprising blend, I think, of three very incompatible, incompatible elements, or seemingly incompatible elements. On the one hand, we have communist ideology. On the other hand, we have peasant custom. And finally, we also have feminist organizational experience. Um, let me explain. Um, the part about the communist ideology is probably easiest to explain because the leaders and organizers of the anti-fascist front of women were all female communists, members of, of the Communist Party or the Communist Youth League. Um, the really interesting part is, is uh, the one about feminist experience. Um, so namely because the Communist Party was banned uh, in the interwar Yugoslavia and operated underground in the 1930s as did most communist parties in Europe at the time. The Yugoslav communists adopted the, the popular front line, which was dictated from Moscow, obviously. And that uh, policy demanded that the communists form very broad alliances with various non-communist anti-fascist groups and organizations. So what happened is that Yugoslav communists, uh, young women, uh, they joined or infiltrated, if you wish, um, various legal organizations. And so several communist girls thus, uh, joined forces with um, feminists in legal women's organizations, most prominently in the Alliance of Women's Movement in Yugoslavia. And... Um, their presence truly radicalized and energized the feminist movement. And so they organized several very successful actions for women's suffrage prior to the war. And it actually those communist women who had experience in the interwar feminist movement, that would form the core, uh, the basis of the kind of female leadership responsible then for the development of the anti-fascist front of women during the and finally, the third element, <clears throat> excuse me, the peasant custom, where does that come in? Uh, well, the, 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 the organization's main goal was to, to mobilize women and to channel their labor towards the partisan war effort. And it did so, the organization did so largely by adapting local uh, rural traditions and sort of peasant custom. To, to a new institutional framework that the communists set up during the war. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. So, uh, women who were recruited by, by the Afrige, they contributed mostly through an extension of their uh, old traditional customary roles and, uh, uh, and responsibilities in, in their village communities and their families. 
they uh, cooked, they knitted and cleaned, they prepared food for the partisans, they uh, tended to the wounded, they laundered, mended, and stuff like that. And so, so the, the, the communist activists, Afrika activists, frequented village gatherings and very often joined uh, women's conversations about their current daily concerns. And um, so they would visit women village gatherings like Prela or Siela. Those were traditional gatherings in which women uh, would get together to, to, to socialize and do some kind of handwork. And they transformed those gatherings into partisan workshops of sorts. Uh, they also organized labor groups of women to carry provisions to the partisans in the woods. And so they did, did that in a, in a fairly remarkably structured way and uh, by using very modern organizational devices. And so what they did thereby is they turned those traditional customs into kinds of catalysts of, of mass participation in very modern warfare. So in actually in, in this partisan institutional setting, just like in the rhetoric, we see that this traditional element was adapted in, 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 a, in, a, in a modern key. I see. Uh, can we also see some of that uh, in the uh, publications that Yafaje made in some of their uh, several magazines that they had published? And I was also wondering what kind of texts were actually found in those magazines, how they reflect on the war, new equality and opportunities, and also on this peasant culture. Well, it, I think those magazines are really also remarkable by themselves because there were multiple wartime journals that were issued by various regional uh, Afrige organizations, nearly two dozens altogether uh, in the course of the war. Um, and, and this is indeed a, a fascinating collection of journals uh, which were created by women, for women, and, and wrote about women. Um, well, to be sure, I want to emphasize this, they were tools for the dissemination of propaganda. But they also did feature some educational pieces and political texts in, in, in an accessible language, in a simple accessible language that, that, uh, that, that the mainly peasant readership could understand. They sometimes offered very basic lectures in history and culture, um, also explanations of recent political developments. They did point at new opportunities for women in, um, in the new common system. Um, and most of all, they tried to encourage women to contribute to the partisans, to send their children to the, to the partisan army. They told stories and anecdotes of, of women who did. I see. So, and, and as I said, uh, many of these texts were written by women for women. And then I was wondering what kind of space they had to negotiate gender relations within the, within the movement, particularly because uh, this was all pretty much controlled by the Communist Party. Did they have any space to perhaps criticize gender norms within the movement? I have not seen. They were they were organs of party propaganda, and there is little doubt about that. Um, I do not see too many criticisms of, of gender relations within the movement other than the completely worthy story that I already uh, described. But there were several, several really shining positives about these journals, and I think really the main contribution um, in, in, in challenging or, or, um, or transforming gender forms 
I think lay in, in the fact that these journalists gave public recognition to present women's work and to their words. And that was a recognition really without, without precedent or rival in the region. Uh, so those journals gave political significance to traditional women's tasks as well. So, um, so tasks in, and, and work everything, so laundering, mending, cooking, now became legitimate ways to contribute to, to the war, to the national liberation. And those who have performed those tasks, uh, most of their lives, without much recognition, now became praised, in a sense, as heroines of the war, right? And uh, similarly, and I think just as important, peasant women were uh, in those journals for the first time given both an authorship and an audience in public, and not only in the Germans. They were encouraged in, to, to speak at various mass conferences that were organized by, by the AFG, and their words were then heard by the masses and quoted in, 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 the, in the journals. They also had the voting rights within the units. Yes, so that was a, that was a new thing that prisons introduced already during the war. They gave the women, Yugoslav women for the first time in Yugoslav history, the right to vote and be elected to uh, office. So, uh, so that, that's a remarkable change. Okay, so let's return to the partisan units and their daily life. You have already mentioned that uh, with, uh, within these texts, uh, many of these traditional chores that women did were actually given new value. So could you tell us more about gender roles within the units and the usual division of labor? Yes, uh, so I, d I, did, I did spend lots of time studying daily practice. Uh, in the units um, and the division of labor among them, those um, among the many topics. So I was particularly interested um, in this issue of how ideology functions in in unscripted conditions on the ground, because these people were egalitarian. But then, with a large number of women in the units, they did find themselves in in something I would call unscripted conditions. They had very little guidance from Moscow and from the Soviets in that respect during the war, and they certainly had no local precedents to, to, to consult. So very often they had to decide on the spot what, who would do what in the units, who would do the laundry, who would cook, who would do other chores, uh, what kind of relations between the sexes would be acceptable. So I was intrigued by those very mundane issues such as division of labor. Right, and the units. And so when we look at these issues, a, a daily practice, we basically see that gender did remain a central organizing principle, even, even in, in a revolutionary guerrilla army, right? And that and actually traditional gender values and traditional hierarchy did persist uh, for all of the egalitarianism of the leadership. And let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, internal party documents do complain a lot about individual military commanders who refuse to accept large number of women into their units. They also repeatedly refer to instances of prejudice and what we would call discrimination nowadays in the units, which kind of note that female partisans were considered inferior that they were politically and militarily neglected, that they were sometimes treated improperly. 
And in general, women were given less training and opportunity to advance. And also, they were often assigned to do the most tedious and least rewarded tasks. So, in fact, this 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 persistence of <clears throat> excuse me traditional notions uh, uh, about gender norms uh, was well probably nowhere more obvious than in those mundane matters that involved daily uh, chores and division of of labor into units. So, the official party position was that of equal participation in all tasks by both genders. But uh, what happened in most units is that, you know, it was expected that women, even if they were fighters, also perform traditional jobs. Uh, cooking, laundering, washing dishes, fetching water, um, sewing, mending, and cleaning. All of these uh, were expected. Um, that, that all of these were the tasks that women were expected to do. And examples abound. Um, I think I write about this example of Rama Yankovic, who was posthumously actually uh, proclaimed a national hero. At first, she was the only woman in her company in a, in a Bosnian battalion early in 1942, and she alone um, did the laundry hand washing in the Greek for all the men of her unit, and she at the same time served as both a nurse and a fighter. And we even see cases of, of platoon, platoon commanders who, who would wash the cloths of, of their fighters while the fighters, uh, male fighters, rested. And so most partisans actually assumed those duties with, with, um, with no complaints, very few complaints, and very often voluntarily. And so what is also very interesting to me is that even female, well, even, even female party leaders, even the most prominent women, of the of the partisan movement took it upon themselves actually to do those domestic chores on the phone. And they were of course communists, so they had to find a way to explain the practice to themselves. And, and how was it explained? So I, I find it really interesting and I cite that and I think I quote that in my, in my book. So I have the words of Mitra Metrovich, who was one of the most prominent party Party woman, uh, one of the female leaders, one of the key figures of the of the AFG. So she came. She explains this. She came up with a kind of theoretical explanation, and she says uh, she talks about how women alternate on duty during the, during those chores. Chores, and then she says uh, the reason that they decide to do that is because they see those chores as a burden for women in general, and that's a burden for them as well. And they think that there is no reason to introduce male comrades to such duties because, and they are fighting for that too, is that these duties will disappear for women as well someday. Um, and then she concludes with, and I was going to paraphrase praising what she said. Um, so male comrades are happy with our theory. That's how she concludes. I see, I see. <laughs> for the majority of partisans, male uh, or female, um, I think this division of labor almost seemed natural, and no grand theory was really necessary to justify it. There were really very few dissenting voices, as I said, peasant girls who were the majority of females in the movement uh, were actually used to both serving men and, and to hard physical labor, and, and so for them there was nothing extraordinary in the expectation that they should continue to do that. Um, the party did condemn these practices, though, but very little was actually done on the on the ground to suppress them. 
And so that practice continued until the very end of the war in, in, in many units. It, it just seems that it was simply easier for the leadership to accommodate those traditional notions than to, than to confront them. I see. And you had mentioned Mitra Mitrovic, and she was the wife of Milovat Gilas, and they were definitely not the only couple within the partisan movement. So I was wondering what kind of relations between sexes were allowed, and how did the party react to, rela to relationships within the units? Uh, well, that, that, was a, that was a big concern, actually, for the leadership, because first, a lot of women's presence in the units did put... Um, it puts the partisan leadership, it did present some, uh, the, before the partisan leadership, some, some major challenges. For one, um, um, the fact that, that young women lived en masse with men in partisan units uh, was, was actually something that provided the partisans' adversaries with terrific propaganda material. Um, so basically, the female partisan became a favorite a favorite target of enemy propaganda during the war. And much of that propaganda focused on her sexuality and on her presumed promiscuity in particular, and also on the alleged um, depravity uh, and, and sexual excess that, that was taking place in partisan units in general. And also, um, women's presence uh, in the units did give rise to some actual tensions in the units. So. So in order to fight this propaganda on the one hand, and also to address those real problems in the movement, um, the partisan leadership did have to come up with, with some solutions, and they instituted a really strict code of, of sexual behavior. So basically what that meant was that the party discouraged romantic relationships and marriages among the partisans. Uh, marriages were explicitly banned for, 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 uh, for staff, partisan staff, members, uh, also typically separated couples and assigned partners to different units, units once their relationship uh, would be discovered. Sometimes they also penalized illicit sexual behavior such as promiscuity or cheating on one's spouse or even getting married or into a new relationship without party permission for, for party members specifically. And um, this relatively strict code um, actually accommodated or catered to the patriarchal, patriarchal uh, norms of, of the peasant masses who populated the units. But it also, in a way, allowed the Communist Party to, to intervene and, and do so in a very modern interventionist manner in, in the most personal um, relationships of, of, of its followers. And, yeah, and one more thing, perhaps it's worth to add. Worth, worth to add. Um, though the partisan code um, did not, in theory, uh, make any difference or any differentiation between the sexes in, in respect to this code, um, those who made decisions on the ground, officials on the ground, commanders on the ground, ordinarily identified women. So it was fairly typical as the destabilizing factor in the units. And so what, it, what happened is that women did figure disproportionately on the receiving end of any punitive measures that, that were introduced for, for kind of incidents of a sexual nature. I see. That's very, very important. Um, so could we also say that this is a 
how uh, patriarchal morality was preserved within the within the partisan units. Yes, it, it, the, this patriarchal morality, uh, or rather the discipline that they introduced, did echo a dictator to the the, the peasant patriarchal morality, and uh, it 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 actually did replicate it in some way, but it did so in a very modern way, right? It's it's, it's basically the main argument of my book is that um, is uh, is that they drew on those traditional. Balkan culture and rearticulated in a modern, in a modern uh, revolutionary key. So I think that actually they're mobilizing genius um, lay precisely in this rhetorical, institutional, and practical adaptation of, of peasants' tradition in a very radical modern revolutionary key. And of course, this strategy uh, allowed them to build a very large self-sustaining resistance movement uh, to justify and uh, women's participation and, and to attract women to participate uh, in warfare, but it also had had a had a flip side in that it institutionalized those traditional practices uh, in in the in the in the partisan movement and the and the nascent communist state that they uh, started to build a it's fascinating, and this story about the partisan women is fascinating during the war. I was wondering what happened to them after the war. Did women retain some position within the army? Did they return to their homes? What happened after? Uh, well, the partisans obviously won the war, and um, they established their own communist regime and um, um, launched a series of programs um, on the Soviet model to transform society, right? And that transformation actually involves sweeping uh, legal reforms aiming to, to, to solve the, the, the so-called woman question. Um, and they did give lots of rights, new rights to women, and in that respect I think they were really true to their wartime promise. So the new constitution that was instituted during the, after the war in 1946 confirmed women's right to vote, vote and be elected, uh, it also established this framework for, for legal for women's legal equality, including equal pay for equal work, and also a really comprehensive um, social welfare program. Um, and women became actually its primary beneficiaries. So when it comes to their legal and political rights, the new state did bring about a major change. And um, what happened to women who were participants in the movement, like women or female recruits everywhere after after World War II, um, most female partisans uh, were demobilized. They were just discharged from the army. And actually, uh, the military service law after the war um, said that female citizens could be drafted in, in, into some services in the preparatory stages for war or during the war, but they were not to serve as permanent military commanders. So in that sense, the, the female partisans um, had this, a similar fate as, as many of the, of the military women that participated elsewhere during World War II. Um, there was one thing that I think distinguished uh, female partisans from their counterparts elsewhere, particularly in the West. Those women in the West were largely removed from the workforce 
uh, so to make room for uh, soldiers returning from the front. Yugoslavia, in contrast, because Yugoslavia was undergoing this process of modernization under the communist rule industrialization, so Yugoslav women did not go back to the home after the war. Instead, uh, the majority of, of, of them moves to the majority of former female partisans moved to towns and cities and uh, found employment or assumed administrative positions in the new, new uh, state apparatus. So in the new regime, um, those who were lower ranking or rank and file female partisans probably could hope for some clerical post, um, posts in um, United States or, or party bureaucracy. Um, the most prominent women, those who have pre-war uh, party credentials uh, or, and who also had important functions during the war, could hope for a position in the higher party committees, in various government posts, or uh, any of the offices in the in the in this administrative new administrative apparatus. Uh, women with medical training typically tend to remain with the professions, and some of some of them, uh, select few, uh, did uh, continue to work for the army. And what happened with their own organization, the FSJ, that you have talked about? Yes, yeah, so so um, actually many party women who had fought in the war also retained or assumed them uh, some positions in, in the FSJ. Um, the FSJ uh, remained actually in charge of work with women after the war, uh, that is in the initial post-war years. So there are several reasons for that, even though this was an organization that had a clear wartime goal of its mobilization, I think the party still needed the organization for several reasons after the war, and one of those is the fact that the, the country needed reconstruction, and uh, the party's goal, namely the creation of an industrialized nation, socialist nation, um, really needed uh, the development of a large industrial proletariat, and that included women, uh, as well as men. So drawing women, attracting women, uh, drawing them into the labor force uh, was as important for the regime as it was uh, drawing them into the army during the war. Okay, and you have Sorry. Yeah, so the organization continued to, to, to work with women and to help their transition and the building of this large industrial proletariat and also was... Uh, was um, in charge of kind of providing women's education and helping them uh, transform into equal and deserving citizens of, of the new state. So in, in the first first years uh, after the war, it continued to work with women. But as soon as this kind of revolutionary era was finished and uh, Tito won his battles against first the reactionary forces and then also Stalin, um, the organization was disbanded, and it actually itself dissolved in 1953, and was uh, in line with, with various decentralizing uh, trends that the country was experiencing at that time. And so, uh, its successors, in some ways, were relatively um, relatively weaker and definitely decentralized. Organization that organizations that never managed to match the, the organizational power and uh, 
enthusiasm and uh, command of the mass following that the uh, AFG did. And in, in a way, I think the, the dismantling of the organization in 1953 really ended a unique era in the history of, of women's movement uh, in the region. It was a, a period of unprecedented politicization, politicization and mobilization of women. Uh, you have tackled in your book that the Communist Party created and recreated narrative about female fighters. I was wondering how that narrative changed and what happened with it following the collapse of communism. Yes, so uh, the memory of, of, the, of the female partisan and the ways that it changed uh, in the post-war years in some ways represents uh, uh, the story, the fate of, of, of socialist Yugoslavia. Um, if we look if we examine the ways that, that the female partisan was memorialized in, uh, in the cultures in the region, um, one can actually trace her journey from uh, a revolutionary icon par excellence in the immediate post-war period and all the way to the oblivion of, that we witness in, in, the, in the present. So what happened is that after the war, the female partisan emerged as the main preeminent symbol of Tito's Yugoslavia. Um, there are several reasons for that, but most obviously the partisan war was the foundational myth of Tito's state, of the communist state, and um, the female partisan was a central character in that mythology. Um, so basically her official image was based on notions of heroism and sacrifice for, for a greater cause, and that image was promoted widely in various official commemorations of the war, war memorials, in communist historiography, in popular historical texts, and it was also shared, interestingly, by uh, the Yugoslav literature and cinematography in the early post-war years in the 40s and 50s. Uh, it's, I think, the prime example is the very first feature of feature film of Tito's Yugoslavia, Slavica, that was actually a movie about a female partisan. So this kind of foundational movie of, of a new cinematography was, was a movie about a female partisan who fought heroically and died um, at the hands of the, of the occupiers. That is very interesting because now we can observe that the remembrance of women in the war is gaining momentum in the UK and in other Western European countries, but yet it is neglected where women challenge existing gender, gender orders to the fighting roles as in the Balkans. So in your opinion, what Yugoslav state should have done to remember these women and what can be done today? Well, I can probably not talk what the state should have done, but I can perhaps tell you what I think why why it is the reason that we do not have similar, uh, similar uh, attempts at, at remembering uh, the phenomenon. And so one, one obvious reason that I see is um, the fact that the war in Yugoslavia was not one but many wars. And among those many wars were, were a series of very brutal civil wars with both ethnic and ideological uh, connotations. And whenever you have a civil war coming up with, a, with, a, with one unifying narrative is, is clearly difficult. So countries that did experience World War II as a civil war typically don't have like home front and, and the same remembers of women's participation on, on, in the home front. And the second, I think probably more important reason uh, 
as to why we don't see, why, why we witness this oblivion today has actually lots to do with the, with the hyper-politicization of memory that I write about, and particularly the memory of, of World War II in the region. Um, and it was clearly politicized, used, and abused by the previous regime to, for, for its own purposes. Um, and uh, the fact, it has to do with the fact that the female partisan was and remains such an important and potent symbol of the communist regime and of the Yugoslav nations, with, with both of which I think the elites and, uh, of the successor states in the region want to disassociate. So uh, as long as the memory of the war remains central, it seems to me, to the current the current interests of the political elites in the region, um, I'm not too hopeful that much will change in this respect. Of course, I mean, if we look at any state-sponsored memory of the past, it's, it's, it's always and everywhere in some ways associated with legitimation and, and kind of, there is some legitimation work that, that is involved in a national identity and it's, and it's not too much different in the UK or the US. But in the Balkans, it's, we are really talking about hyper and the centrality to that, uh, the centrality of the imagery of World War II to that process. And so I see that when some new generation perhaps, some new generations perhaps, or new scholars in the region can approach the phenomenon less as a political project and more as a, as a, as a historical subject. And I would add to that a truly fascinating historical subject. Uh, we can hope that there will be some space in, in, in the public eye for, for the remembrance of, of this phenomenon. Yelena Batunic, we have to end here, but that was lovely. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk for the New Books Network. Thank you.